0: Hi, everybody. This is Leslie Appleton-Young, the Chief Economist with the California Association of Realtors, welcoming you to the, thank goodness it's Friday edition (laughs) of the Housing Matters podcast. And I am here with
1: Jordan Levine. Hey, everyone
0: delighted to be um, sharing a a few minutes with Jordan to talk about some of the exciting things that are happening in the market, in the economy, in policy uh, in the next 20 minutes or so. So Jordan, big news this week, not a big surprise. The Fed increased the funds rate a little bit. How are you seeing that play out?
1: Yeah, so the Fed raised rates again. This is the second time in just a handful of months. I think they you know, potentially were trying to stick to their guns a bit more. Last year they said they were going to try and raise rates four times, and, you know, we didn't see anything all the way up until, you know, end of the year. This year they said basically the same thing, looking at raising rates, you know, four more times, and they really, you know, came out swinging out of the gate. This is the second rate hike this year. Um That said, the federal funds rate's still pretty low, and it looks like, when you look out across the markets, that uh, this was largely kind of built in already. The 10-year bond rate actually went down after that.
0: Right, right. So much for the power of the Fed, right? It's the expectations leading up to it that seem to drive the markets.
1: That's right. And, you know, the mortgage rate followed. You know, we were up about 90 basis points overall at the start of the week, and over the course of the last five or six days, it's come right back down to about 4.2%. So, again this wasn't a surprise to the markets, and it does suggest that we're just going to see that kind of slow and steady climb in long-term rates, mortgage rates, rather than kind of rocketing up to 5, 5.5%.
0: Yeah, well, certainly not right away. So what is your take on how many more increases we could see between now and the end of the year?
1: Well, if you look at the economic data, I think it supports at least one more. Um, I think we could easily get that three rate hikes this year and potentially four. We just got new jobs numbers, which were pretty robust, over 200,000 again. Right. Uh, And we also got some inflation numbers this week that showed the core inflation was, again, slightly above that Fed target of 2%. That seems to give them the cover to, you know, make those rate hikes that they seem to really want to do.
0: Right. And certainly the equity markets are very, very happy. We've seen (laughs) tremendous gains um, since the uh, election in November. What's your take on how long we're going to enjoy the uh, uh, heights that we're experiencing right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, hey, it's great if you already own stocks right. and you know the Dow up above 21,000 is, you know, all-time high levels and and there's no doubt that, you know, the equity markets are very optimistic. I just my concern, I guess, is that they could potentially be a little bit over-optimistic. Uh, when you look at where earnings are at, they've been coming in positive, but right. they're not coming in gangbusters to the point where you'd expect to be pushing new highs in the stock market year after year now. you know, Of course, it's all about future earnings right. and things like yeah. that. There's a lot
0: of hope. There's know. a lot of hope that we're going to get uh, tax, uh, tax, uh, slash, taxes slash, that we are going to get uh, infrastructure spending, that we are going to get... Um, more jobs and more production in the country so we're just going to see how this all plays out every day is a new adventure uh, with the Trump administration and hopefully we'll all end up uh, being uh, even more uh, elated than the markets seem to be right now we'll have to see
1: yeah exactly I mean we hope it really holds up and so far so good in terms of the economic data Um, you know but again, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, rates can really impact the value of equities, too. So I think that the market has kind of lost sight of that when they're discounting all those future profits right. they plan on making. Right, but, uh you know, there's a big time value of money at, at five and a half or six percent interest rates. So.
0: Well, and so tr- transitioning a little bit to one of the most interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, which is our industry, the real estate industry, we came out this week with our February uh, 2017 sales. And, you know, when you look at January and February, we're definitely above uh, last year. I think we're off to a relatively um, robust. Uh, Start. What's your take, Jordan?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's been a really strong start, especially when you consider kind of our starting position, right? What's kind of amazing that you can create a a 5% or a 4.9% uptick in sales activity when we're still very, very low on inventory from a historical standpoint. And so, um, you know, I've been worried about how long we could sustain this pace of growth in transactions just specifically because of that. And so I think especially from that perspective, you know, February and January were a really good start to the year.
0: Yeah, and certainly there's a lot of uh, regional variation within California. But in general, if you slice and dice the numbers, what you see is a high end that's that's been pulling back. Those prices have plateaued or even coming down a little bit uh, in some areas. That's kind of rarefied. You know, I like to say that when you buy a $6 million home, it's not really a shelter issue. But on the other side of the spectrum, the entry level affordable uh, housing stock is in very, very high demand. So there's a lot of upward pressure still on prices in that range.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I say probably a lot less eloquently, but I think, you know, people at the top end don't mind spending a bunch of money, but I think the thing they do mind is getting ripped off and they're starting to worry about prices potentially being overvalued and and not wanting to kind of make a mistake there. But when you look at the inventory numbers, I mean, it's purely a bottom end of the market problem. And when you look at stuff above a million or two million, we're talking about 10, 11 months of supply in a lot of markets versus, you know, lower than two in a lot of cases for things under 500,000 I mean there's just virtually no housing left that's under 200,000 I mean we used to have a quote-unquote entry level and it just doesn't exist
0: anymore. right it, it really doesn't and if you look at at our unsold inventory uh, index for February we had a four-month supply of homes on the market which meant that at the current sales pace we'd be out of inventory in four months and a year ago when inventory was tight it was 4.7 months so we're even tighter uh, than we were back then. And I, I, I um, it's, it's kind of interesting. I was able to uh, speak at a national uh, conference last week for a, a national franchise called Next Home. And it was really a, a very interesting, very well done uh, conference. So I was able to kind of study the data mm-hmm. for the country as a whole. And, you know, this isn't just a U.S phenomenon this is really being shared on the east coast and up and down the west coast and you have to think about where it's all going
1: to end yeah yeah exactly i mean you know california is uh pretty unique in the sense that we're you know such chronic underbuilders. but even when you look out nationwide in states that are a lot better than us in terms of building new housing supply um you know we haven't even gotten back to the long run average Um, nationwide even for the last 10 years we've been below the the historical average which is like one and a half million units and we've never even touched that 10 years running. And so, you know, particularly acute here in California, but this is, again, something that's all over the place.
0: Right. And we've certainly seen this before. I, you know, it seems like it goes in about a 10 year cycle, but I remember, um, we had a campaign that said, where will our children live? And I think it's time to dust that off and, and bring it back because it really is getting, um, it's getting tight. And of course, the, the lucky uh, millennials who have boomer parents that are willing uh, to help them get into home ownership, and they, there does seem to be a certain amount of that going on, are certainly very lucky indeed for those that don't uh, what we're seeing is really something that um, jordan you've done a lot of fabulous uh, analysis of using the um, american community survey is really looking at migration patterns and what we're seeing is not just a migration within california from the expensive coast to the less expensive inland areas But there are cities throughout the United States that are becoming very attractive because they're growing the jobs of the new economy at the same time they're able to offer affordable housing.
1: That's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was. Um, a case where we may have been resting on our laurels a bit. I think back in the 90s, uh, when you think about high tech and things like that, we were pretty much the only game in town. Um, It didn't really matter if you wanted to be in the tech space. You were going to Silicon Valley. Right Now, you know, you see the Bostons, the Austins, Portland, Seattle. um, You know, they're all taken off, Salt Lake City even. And, uh, you know, those are all places where housing is considerably more affordable um, even than, you know, the the more affordable parts of of California even and so
0: yeah, and it's it seems like yeah it seems like these Millennials are really willing to make that trade-off and I was looking at the Milken Institute's annual report that uh, Duvall does so well mm. where he looks at the top 10 best performing large and small cities and as you look down the small cities you're seeing you know Bend Oregon College Station Texas Logan Utah Columbus Indiana Gainesville Georgia so um, as you noted you know 30 years ago there were the coasts and there were the flyover states and now we are looking I think at a period of time where we're going to be filling in the middle you know the the next home um, uh, people had some interesting data so they have offices around the country Uh and they said that in Austin 70 percent of their out-of-state buyers are from california in raleigh it's 40 percent and in portland it's 30 percent. so that was pretty stunning as well
1: yeah so i guess that lends credence to all of uh rick perry's i guess poaching trips that he came over and kind of lured our our businesses away but you know there's no doubt i mean when you can look at a market like austin tons of high-tech jobs fast growing too incomes are rising and i think that you know even with all the price growth that they've had and prices are rising out there in texas i think you know austin which is one of their most expensive markets is similarly priced to the inland empire which is one of our most affordable markets and so you know even if you have to take a slight pay cut if you're paying half as much for your home you're still way better off and that's a you know having a great quality of life is cool and is attractive for young millennials right and
0: being in a university environment they've got South by Southwest I'm hoping to go to that conference next year I saw that they had a, a couple of panels dealing with housing and home ownership which I thought was uh, was super cool yes, so we'll have
1: to work that network
0: yeah exactly time. we're gonna have to look into that so um, maybe we should just get back to just a few other things in terms of prices sure. so in February the median home price for the um, state was 478490 and on a year-over-year basis, we're still in that kind of mid-single-digit range. That was about 7.6% above uh, February of last year, but how are we doing in the components of the market, Jordan?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, when you look at where prices are going, it's, you know, really kind of is mirroring what you see on the supply side again when you look at the top end of the market you're starting to see you know discounting so actually sales list price ratios are going further and further away from asking price um, and days on the market are are actually stretching out a bit, so they're staying on longer. You're having to discount a bit more to get them to move. Uh, whereas at the at the low end of the market, tons and tons of price pressure because there's no um, inventory, and so you get you know even more fierce competition for those listings. And you know that's what's driving most of this price growth.
0: Right, and I think another factor uh, that we should probably mention are Chinese buyers. So we do a, a survey every year where we ask. California realtors about their last closed transaction. And three years ago, 8% of them said my buyer was not a U.S. resident. And three years later, it's only 3%. And that drop is really being driven to a large extent by by China that has gotten serious about their capital controls. It's 50,000 is all you can get out. And I think they may even be uh, reducing that. It's harder to get your whole family to contribute and get enough to pay all cash in, in some of these tony areas. So I think that that has also had a disproportionate impact on some specific areas within the state.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think you see that especially down here in the San Gabriel Valley and things like that where you know those kind of investor-driven sales have really seemed to, to dry up quite a right. bit.
0: So. Right. So um, I guess the other thing I wanted to ask you about, um, Oscar um, <laughs> Jordan, um, because we haven't had a chance to talk this week, is you were at the um, NABE conference, the National Association of Business Economists, back in uh, Washington, looking at policy. And I'd I'd really be interested in hearing some of your key takeaways from the conference.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was a a great conference. Usually I kind of go in there feeling like I I know what's coming down the pike and know what to expect. And so it's more to catch up with other economists and see what's going on in their industries. But this year, it was just so many question marks out there as we talk about, you know every couple of weeks on here, but uh, lots of focus on how we can get that growth to 4%. I think a lot of the things that we're seeing in the stock market in terms of, you know, even interest rates and the Fed's outlook is predicated on, um, you know, an accelerated pace of economic growth moving forward. We're going to create more jobs. And so uh, one of the most interesting things that I think we saw was a panel where they talked about how policy, you know, how effective policy essentially can be at speeding up the pace of growth in our in our economy. And actually, uh, we had one of the the heads of the White House uh, budgeting group under Obama, and he was doing a panel with another guy who was a more um, conservative-oriented economist. But they generally had a consensus. And some of the things I thought that were really interesting was just the magnitude of how much of this policy can really do. So they said, you know, if we did comprehensive immigration reform as it was envisioned back in 2013, which I guess we're thinking about doing the opposite of what that was, but that would have added, you know, 0.3% to growth. So maybe takes away 3% if we, you know, have a lot more, um,
0: Right. Because yeah. we've got a pretty tight labor market. I mean, that's one of the issues is just the demographics. Are they there to support 4% growth or not?
1: Yeah. And, and you know, the National Association of Home Builders was there and those guys were up in arms um, about potential deportations because they're already really buttoned up against some pretty steep wage increases and a lack of available workers. And, and that's really holding back construction right. as well. Um so, you know, that's one. But even if you did the the kind of tax reform, uh, you know, instituted a bunch of better terms of trade, we did the infrastructure thing. I mean, you add up all these different policy levers that folks are talking about in Washington right now, and they still only add about 0. 0.7, 0.8 percent. So we're running, you know, about 1.9, 2 percent growth right now. And so that means uh, so that we'd be
0: lucky to hit three, probably. If, if
1: everything goes well. And that's right. kind of a best case scenario. Um, And so, you know, again, coming back to where where the stock market is and and asset values and things like that, it's just, I you know, I worry that we potentially have gotten ahead of ourselves when, even if we do everything right, we're looking at only 3%, not 4% growth, which is really what, you know, folks are banking on in terms of closing those long-run output gaps.
0: Right. And I mean, 3% sounds good. I mean, we've been below 3% for the last 11 years, so uh, we'll take it. We'll hope for more, but um, we don't want to be overly negative but it is going to be um, a little bit of a stretch. And I want to just say a few things about, um, about California in particular from the perspective of uh, the California Association of Realtors. You know, We're looking at the repeal and replacement of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and we're also looking at the immigration-deportation um, nexus. And both of those things could potentially have huge impacts on the California state budget. So if you're looking at a $10 billion deficit or maybe significantly more, we're concerned that you're gonna start looking at things like a tax on services or transfer taxes or things that will make housing in California even more uh, expensive. So we've always got um, our, rational realtor party hat on, kind of looking at these policies with respect to what impact is it going to have on the California housing market, and I think the the bottom line is we're just not sure. We're really just, everybody's kind of waiting to see how things play
1: out. That's right, but there's no doubt that California gets a lot of aid, you know, coming in through Medicaid, infrastructure, all kinds of stuff. Uh, from the federal government and if that dries up you really put the state behind the eight ball and they start considering new ways to generate revenues and and there everybody's on the chopping block
0: right right and you've got employment in the agricultural heartland in the whole middle of 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 california that would be impacted by lack of uh of uh, of workers so um you know it's it's a whole new day it's a whole new ball game and we'll just kind of have to have to see how um, how things go. I don't. I want to end though on a on cer- certainly a, a positive note. You know the the Bay Area economy, uh, in particular, is the strongest regional economy in the country. You right. know it has the fastest job growth in the high wage earning. Um, uh, sectors, um, and we are attracting millennials who are highly educated, and and so on. So, um, you can't really discount that. And and I think with respect to Silicon Valley, the other thing that we really haven't touched on yet, but maybe should just say a few things about our uh, trade policy, trade reform, uh, renegotiating trade. Uh, trade deals and the possibility of trade wars because Silicon Valley is very vulnerable um, to that as our retailers I mean you've had sure. Walmart and and some of the other national retailers very concerned about the uh, border adjustment right. uh, border adjustment tax but I, I do think that we have to keep a really um, a fine eye on how uh, trade policy is going to hopefully um, help but maybe hinder uh, what is kind of the heart of, of, of that Bay Area economy.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I think that's one of the things that gets lost in all of these trade discussions. The focus is on, you know, Heartland, Rust Belt type manufacturing jobs. And we do have a big uh, trade deficit in terms of manufactured goods. But I think, you know, it's important to remember that we also have a huge trade surplus in terms of services going abroad to the rest of the world. That's all of our IT services up in the Silicon Valley, professional services, accountants, business consultants, um, and so you know, cutting back on trade or, or restricting those imports from abroad, uh, the, fee, you know, the worry is that they counterpunch back on some of these areas of our strength uh, in the service sector, which could directly come home to roost. In the Bay Area, which also has you know housing implications, which we could talk about at length right, as right. well. But you know the reason why housing is so expensive and tight is because the economy is booming. And so you know if you reverse that trend, that's right. obviously going to have feedback effects going through in housing. But even on the good side, I mean, down here in Southern California, we've got right. I always warn people we've got those big huge ports of L.A. and Long Beach, which are you know combined the biggest ports I think are up there in the nation. And you drive out to the Inland Empire, and you can't help. But you know, see hundred thousand square foot facilities right. for logistics as far as the eye can see, and so um, you know, I think it's also you know, kind of a nerdy trade, you know, macroeconomic issue, but it's really just a uh, bread and butter housing issue for Southern California as well. Because if we start seeing fewer and fewer containers coming in and out of those ports, it means less truck drivers, less jobs at those logistics facilities. And that, you know, again, filters through to demand for housing and how many transactions we're going to close down here.
0: Right, exactly. And I want to close with just a book recommendation that came out I don't know, three or four years ago, by a professor at UC, at, uh, at Berkeley, um, uh, Enrico Moretti, and it's called mm-hmm. the New Geography of Jobs. And the introduction to this book has stayed with me for, you know, the five years since I've since I first read it. And he describes a, I think he's a professor who lives um, in somewhere in the Peninsula of San Francisco, and he's trying to decide in 1969 where to live, and he's Mm -hmm. looking at two communities, and the first community is Menlo Park, and the second community is Visalia, Mm -hmm. and certainly in the last 45, 50 years, those two communities have gone in vastly different directions, but if you go back to the 1960s, they were very Similar, yeah, right? Uh-huh. And and he looked at school quality and job growth and and all of these things. So that's probably a topic for another um, another podcast. But just how intertwined and key the relationship is between job growth, income growth, and housing uh, and housing demand. So
1: yeah, it seems like everything always comes back to housing in California. It and does.
0: Housing. It absolutely does. Yeah. So um, I think that's it from me, Jordan. Do you have any? closing salvos for the podcast today?
1: No, I mean, I think the market's tough out there, but we are growing and there's still a lot of opportunities, so you know, there's no doubt that we can all make it a great year, despite all these kind of question marks and challenges ahead.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this isn't a question on on the demand side, you know, and this isn't an issue of millennials not being interested in getting into housing. It's just the issue that California deals with on a fairly um, regular basis, and that is how to um, afford uh housing in an environment where we're just not getting nearly enough new construction so if anybody has any great ideas on what we can do to to make that happen we're, we're all ears. We'd be, yeah we're all ears so um anyway with that we'll be back in two weeks thank you for joining us
1: thanks everyone
0: talk to you soon Bye-bye. Bye bye bye